You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. One of the values that we have at the peak that uh, we as pastors and staff hear back from you most often that you appreciate is the fact that we try to be a very honest and open, uh, genuine community of people. That's both who we've decided to be and, more importantly, who we believe God is calling us to be. So in that same spirit, I am going to begin this morning with a little honest confession. A couple of months ago, one of my friends sent me something that they saw online, and they said, I saw this and I thought of you, which made me so excited, and so I clicked the link only to find this. Needless to say, I was a little bit embarrassed But I did consider ordering the shirts because ultimately I do love Jesus. And here's the confession part. I do cuss a little. (laughs) Now before you freak out, just know that I have not always been this way. But as a pastor, I attended seminary. And that's actually where I learned how to curse really well. But thankfully, I also learned that there is a context for cursing. For example, because we've talked about it today, I am definitely not going to curse in my sermon. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) I don't curse anytime there are youth or children around. And I would say that I don't curse around my parents, which is like, I don't know, that's what most people do. That's a common practice. But my parents actually really love it when I say bad words because I, for most of my childhood, was the goodest little church girl And they find it downright hilarious when they hear a curse word come out of my mouth now as an adult. So for some of you, you're hearing this and you're thinking, wow, this is a confession? Wow, that is really lame. (laughs) You are as fluent in the bad words as you are in the good ones. Uh, And that's fine. That's fine. But for others, I may have scandalized you and I'm sorry. But regardless of your own personal approach to bad words, I think we can all agree that cursing is generally against the rules, or at least ill-advised in certain places. Jesus probably doesn't love it when I say bad words, but it is also not the worst thing I could do. I feel like it, it falls somewhere in between forgetting to recycle my sparkling water drink cans <laughs> and then maybe like cutting someone off in traffic. It's kind of in between uh, somewhere in that zone. <laughs> What I've realized about this particular behavior of mine is that it comes from um, a part of my nature that I believe is actually universal. And that is that human beings love to be disobedient. We really do. Those of you who are parents don't need me to tell you that, right? You know how hard it is to make sure that your children not only survive to adulthood, but also somehow become functioning members of society, right? You have to work really hard to kind of uh, teach that disobedience out of them as much as you can. Even for those of us who, like me, are kind of rule followers, goody-two-shoes types, uh, we also 
still uh, get some sort of strange satisfaction from occasionally doing something against the rules, especially if we can get away with it. Because this is such a basic part of being a human being, we see a lot, a lot of disobedience in the whole story of Scripture. Right? Perhaps one of the prime examples of this is the story of Jonah, which Liz read the introduction to for us this morning. Maybe you're already familiar with this first part of Jonah's story. Right? God calls Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites, which is an Assyrian city not too far from northern Israel. Uh, it's in modern-day Iraq. And Jonah displays the mark of a true prophet, right? All the best prophets in the Bible did not want to do what it was that God was asking of them. And this is certainly true for Jonah. He does not want to go to Nineveh. And so, desperate to escape the gaze of this expectant God, Jonah goes straight to Joppa. I know you all go there frequently. Um, This is where he finds the one ship that is headed the farthest away to a place called Tarshish. Now, for those of us who are less than familiar with ancient Near East geography, don't worry, I got you. This is Jerusalem, right here, and uh, it's so close to Joppa that I didn't even really need another dot, right? So Joppa is the place where Jonah found the boat. Jerusalem is the place where he served uh, in the temple courts as a prophet, right? And so this is where Jonah started. Uh, This is Nineveh, where he was supposed to go. It's a fair distance, right? That would take a while to walk there. And this, all the way over here, is Tarshish. (laughs) This is where Jonah was trying to go. It's so far away that it's actually on a different continent. So lots of prophets don't want to do what God says, but Jonah takes it to a whole new level. Expert level disobedience. And so the story begins. Soon after setting sail on the boat, there's this raging storm that threatens the safety of the boat itself and everyone on board, right? And these sailors somehow sense among them that it is Jonah uh, who is in trouble with God. And so they pray that God would spare them. And just to make sure that God does spare them, they just straight throw Jonah off the boat with all of the stuff. (laughs) They're like, you and all of our cargo, we don't need you. (laughs) We want to live. And uh, then comes the part of the story that you might know, right? This big fish or this great whale comes and swallows Jonah whole. And while he's there, uh, inside of this fish's stomach, um, he prays what I would call one of the most ridiculous prayers in the Bible. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. From the belly of the underworld, (laughs) I cried out for help. You have heard my voice, and so I said, I have been driven away from your sight. Will I ever look upon your holy temple again? Resting in the stomach of this giant fish, Jonah says, God, I cry out to you from, and he looks around, the belly of hell. (laughs) Oops, sorry, I said a bad word. (laughs) If only you hadn't kicked me out of the temple, God. My life wouldn't be so miserable right now. This prayer is ridiculous because Jonah is trying to claim that all of this happened to him because God drove him away from the place where he was faithfully serving the Lord, right? But we all know that's not how it really went down. If anyone drove Jonah away from the temple, it was Jonah. 
And so in this prayer, Jonah is trying to gaslight God. Pretty bold move. Wouldn't recommend. The only response to Jonah's prayer is that three days later, I have to imagine those were a pretty long three days for him, uh, he gets thrown up onto the beach. Gross. And finally, he's back on dry land, and I can just picture him like kissing the ground, so glad to be alive, but before he can even stand up again, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and it says the same thing that it did before. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare against it the proclamation that I am commanding you. One of my favorite parts of the book of Jonah is right here. Uh, in between these two verses, because there's no interlude. It seems that Jonah has very quickly, or perhaps from his perspective, very slowly learned his lesson. And so it says in the very next verse that Jonah immediately gets up and he travels to Nineveh to do what God has asked twice now. So Jonah does it. And it says that the, the city of Nineveh is so big, it's so great, that it takes three days for Jonah to go from one end to the other. He preaches a three-day sermon, longest sermon in the history of humanity to these people. And when he's done, it says that the king and all the people and even the animals in Nineveh began to repent of their evil ways and they fasted and God was so pleased with them that God spared the whole city from judgment for their violence and their evil behavior. As it turns out, Jonah is a pretty effective preacher. Who would have thought? Now, that would be a really lovely place for this story to end, right? Jonah does the thing. Everybody's saved. Happily ever after the end. But no such luck for us or for Jonah. It tells us that Jonah becomes angry after seeing the whole city of Nineveh do exactly what he told them to do. He's upset that his preaching actually made a difference. And as a preacher myself, Jonah's attitude makes me want to punch him in the arm. <laughs> Come on, Jonah. That was a once-in-a-lifetime sermon, dude. <laughs> so Jonah says to God, the whole reason I didn't do what you said, the whole reason I ran away is because I know you. I know you. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy. Jonah says, no one knows better than I do, I'm a great sinner, no one knows better than I do that you are a God of grace. But at this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me, he says, because it would be better for me to die than to live. This is such a profoundly human response, isn't it? <laughs> Things didn't go the way that Jonah hoped. And so at this point, it would just be better for him to die altogether. Sounds like me at age 13. I would rather just die. I'm so embarrassed. But here's what I think. I think Jonah no more wants to die than the next person, but Jonah just wants to make his point with God. Here I think Jonah is actually the classic example of a really, really toxic person. He tries with all his might to hold his will over God. Again, bold move, wouldn't recommend. And when things don't go his way, he becomes threatening and manipulative. And so God responds as only God can. 
with a question. Is your anger a good thing? That is a question. My own translation would say something like, oh, you're angry, Jonah, really? Come on. So they begin to argue back and forth, Jonah and God, and while they're talking, the text says that Jonah goes out east of the city, and he builds for himself a little hut, and he sits down, pouting, waiting to see what's going to happen, waiting to see if God will condemn these people that he so badly wants God to condemn see if he will get his way. And as he's doing all of this, Jonah and God finally get to the root of the problem in their conversation. God continues to ask, is your anger good? And finally, Jonah explodes and says, yes, my anger is good even to the point of death. Jonah's willing to die. I like to imagine right here, that God allows for there to be an extended, profound silence. The kind of silence that always follows a big breakthrough in a crucial conversation or even maybe in therapy. Can't you just picture God, the great therapist, sitting across from, no, uh, from Jonah in a chair, sort of like twiddling his glasses, nodding. Hmm. And after the silence has gone on for so long that Jonah has started to realize just what he's said, finally God quietly responds. For my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And in a way that always haunts me anytime I come back to this story, the book of Jonah ends right there. Now, as always, when it comes to reading scripture, it can be really easy for all of us to be amused by the people that we read about. It can be easy for us to marvel that these folks and their stories ever made it in the Bible at all. It can be easy for us to distance ourselves from them and from their behavior. But I would encourage us not to do that ever but also especially with Jonah. Jonah does what any of us would do if God called us to do something crazy. Jonah did what I did when I first sensed God calling me, if not a bit more dramatically than I did. I never ended up inside of another animal. Um, but we can't laugh at Jonah too much. We can't deride Jonah because Jonah's disobedience is our disobedience. You see, I think there are at least three reasons why Jonah didn't want to do what God was asking, reasons that explain our disobedience, too. The first reason is that Jonah was comfortable. Jonah was the court priest for the king. Life was good for Jonah. He got to live in the palace. He got to eat all the food that the king ate. And as long as he did his job, everything was fine. He was safe. He was protected compared with nearly every other person on the planet at that time, Jonah lived an incredibly privileged life, and he knew that to follow God in that moment would be to walk away from all of that, at least for a little while. And I wonder if, for those of us here in this place called the peak of good living, I wonder if we might know a little something about that 
The second reason for Jonah's disobedience is that Jonah was entrenched in his own self-righteous anger. Jonah knew who the Ninevites were. He knew all about their immoral behavior. He knew them, those people over there. <laughs> There's a train coming. <clears throat> it's all good. <laughs> um, Jonah had no intention of preaching to these people ever. Jonah didn't want to be a part of their salvation. He knew, or maybe he thought he knew, that the Israelites were God's only people, and therefore everybody else was not, and they should be left to their own wicked devices. Getting a little confessional here again, this is where I see myself most in Jonah. I am the queen of self-righteous anger the champion of imagining that my way is the best way and that everybody else should just fall in line with what I think. As much as I try to resist the impulse, I am constantly giving into this us-versus-them mentality that characterizes our culture so much. This is where the bulk of my spiritual work, my own confessions, my gospel convictions lie these days. I'm working incredibly hard to dismantle my own self-righteous anger. I'm not so sure that we could say the same for Jonah, at least in this moment in his life. With that being said, I do want to be very clear. There is a substantial difference between self-righteous anger and righteous anger. The best example of this difference I can think of is related to everything that's going on right now. We are watching as a whole nation is being invaded and destroyed. We are witnessing as war crimes happen in real time in Ukraine, as so many people die for the sake of a quest for power. Somewhere between two and 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed so far. An estimated 12,000 Russian soldiers have died. More than 2.6 million people have had to flee the country as refugees. And as of this morning, after Another deadly airstrike last night. These attacks have killed at least 1,500 civilians, 42 of whom were children. This should make us righteously angry. This should spur us into a desire for action, a desire to make it stop, a desire to seek peace so that nothing like this ever happens again anywhere in Ukraine in Afghanistan, in Palestine, in Syria, anywhere. This kind of anger is good and right. This is the kind of anger that we share with God. But that is not the kind of anger that Jonah gives into. His anger doesn't prompt action. It prompts his own self-righteousness a kind of puffing up that allows him to sit on his high horse, looking down on everybody around him. I think in one way or another, all of us can understand an attachment to this kind of anger, can't we? All of us have our own high horses that we like to climb on. All of us find ways to be puffed up. We are all much more prone to self-righteous anger than righteous anger these days. 
Finally, I believe that somewhere in the call to action he receives, Jonah encounters a God who isn't the God Jonah thought he believed in. Some, sometimes, I think, our, our disobedience comes when we see God breaking the rules that we made for God. More often than not, human beings want God to be more judgmental, harsher, more exclusionary, more power-hungry, and ultimately less forgiving than God actually is. We see this happen over and over again. We see this happen with Jonah. Jonah was hoping God would smite the people of Nineveh. He was hoping God would wipe Nineveh off the face of the planet, that the Ninevites would finally get what was coming to them. Somewhere during the course of his life, Jonah had come to understand the lie that God's primary role was to be judge, jury, and executioner for the world, and somewhere deep in his heart, in a very sinful place. He believed that this was the way it should be. But Jonah isn't alone in this. In fact, one of the other places in Scripture where we see this phenomenon happen is in the New Testament, in the Gospels. After Jesus is arrested, right before he's killed, Peter finds himself sitting by a fire in the temple courtyard, wondering what to do next. There, in quick succession, several different people recognize him as a follower of Jesus. Hey man, weren't you with that guy who just was very publicly arrested? All three times, Peter denies being with Jesus, but his most revealing response to the accusations comes when he says, I do not know him. The story is often interpreted as Peter's fear causing him to be a coward. He's afraid of dying, afraid of being arrested. But I think it all happened a little bit differently. You see, I think Peter was totally bought into the image of the Messiah that many Jewish people at the time understandably believed in and hoped for. We see this because the whole time Peter travels with Jesus, all three years of their ministry together, he is always confused. Jesus does something, and Peter's like, that is the opposite of what I thought you were going to do. <laughs> and it can, it can be really easy for us to think that this is because Peter is like, maybe like a couple sandwiches short of a picnic, right? He's a little bit slow. But that's not it at all. I don't think Peter's dumb. I don't think he's a coward. Peter believed in a Messiah who was coming to defeat the Roman Empire. Peter believed in a savior who would be a skilled warrior riding in on a high horse into battle with a big sword, taking out all of their enemies and establishing the people of God as the new rulers of the world. Peter and so many others believed the Messiah would free them from the subjugation of their conquerors and then in turn give them the power they needed to conquer. Now, before we go pointing any fingers, all we have to do is look around today to see that there is still a lot of Christian theology out there that claims this as the way of Jesus. But the real Jesus, giving himself up to be arrested and ultimately killed, this was the last straw for Peter. He had been waiting for years for Jesus to finally take up his weapon. We even see that expectation play out as Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that when the crowds came to arrest Jesus, one of the disciples took a sword and began to fight, 
cutting off the ear of a slave. Some of the disciples clearly believe this is the beginning of the revolution, the war that will put them back on top. But Jesus immediately stops him and says, put that sword back where it belongs. It does not belong here. All those who use the sword will die by the sword. He restores the man's ear and gives himself over to be arrested. In that moment, I think Peter has heard one too many beatitudes. He's heard, love your enemies, preached a little too often. He has seen one too many moments of peace established by a gentle Jesus. You see, when the crowds accuse Peter of following Jesus, he says, no, it's not true. I don't even know Jesus. I think he means it. Much like Jonah, we see Peter grappling with a God who is not what he expected or even wanted. Both Jonah and Peter meet the God who really is merciful and compassionate, very patient, full of faithful love, and always, always willing to find a way for redemption to happen. The author, Anne Lamott, has this powerful quote. She says, You can safely assume you have created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. In our worst moments of disobedience, we try to make God in our image instead of the other way around. Instead of allowing the spirit of God to form and reform us into the people we were always created to be, to form and reform us into the image of God. And so if we want to be obedient, if we want to be people who listen to the voice of God, we must do the work of suspending our expectations, our understandings, our rules for God. We must set aside our comfort and our self-righteous anger. And we must come to terms with the reality that God's ways are not our ways. They are higher and better, kinder and more loving, bolder and more peaceful than anything we could ask for or imagine. If you hang out with me these days for any length of time, chances are you'll hear me talk about something called spiritual direction. And if you hang out with me long enough, you'll probably ask me to stop talking about spiritual direction because you'll get tired of hearing about it. But for those of you who aren't familiar with this practice, spiritual direction is a one-on-one -on -one relationship in which the director helps the seeker be more attentive to the spiritual life, more attentive to the places where God is present and at work in their lives. I'm in a program that is certifying me very slowly to become a spiritual director, and one of my favorite parts of this program is that we get to learn directly from people of different Christian traditions and even different faiths altogether. This past Monday night during class, we had the opportunity to learn from a Benedictine monk. Don't meet a lot of those these days. He shared with us about the rule of life Benedictines submit to in community, and he taught us about the three vows that they all take. The vows are, number one, stability. Number two, conversatio morum. 
which in Latin means getting on with being a Christian. Like, let's go. Do the Christian thing. Let's do it. (laughs) And finally, number three, obedience. Obedience. It was profound to hear him speak about their life together. And uh, (laughs) I found myself deeply drawn in by his description and uh, curious that uh, whether or not they would let me join them. I think the answer is no. Uh, because somehow I don't imagine Benedictine monks curse very much. I think on that alone I would be out. One of the, the most surprising aspects of his lesson for us was that Benedictine obedience is not the kind of obedience that you and I typically think of, the kind of obedience that leaves a bitter taste in our subversive mouths, right? It's not that. Instead, when a Benedictine talks about obedience, they are talking about obedience to divine love. This is a kind of obedience that asks, what would love have me say? What would love have me do? Who would love have me be? If in any given moment we can discern the answers to those questions and then act accordingly, My theory is that we will find that obedience to divine love might just end up being the kind of disobedience we all really crave. The right kind of disobedience. The disobedience to the deeply broken ways of this world. If we are able to say and do and be as love bids us, we will find all of the gifts that a life of obedience has to offer to us. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.